Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. I'm Ethan, and if it is your first time to the Good Music Podcast, here's some stuff that you need to know. First off, if you've not only if it's your first time, if you've been listening for a little while and you haven't subscribed, you need to subscribe because it's the greatest music uh, podcast uh, out there right now, and we'll tell you why in a little bit. But so, first thing, subscribe. Thing number two, get on social media, Instagram or Facebook. Get on there. DM us, uh, comment bands that you like, comment things about episodes that you like, things you agree with, things you disagree with. We have a great community on there. We're bringing some cool stuff to YouTube. And if you've been here for a long time and you're like, if only I had more good music podcasts in my life, there is a way that you can do that. And that is by donating to us on Patreon. You get early episodes. Um, and you get the special after hour segment where we talk about the episode and things that uh, no one else gets to hear about the bands and uh, our thoughts that will be exclusive to you. And uh, the link to that Patreon, if you're a super hardcore fan, that is in the description. But Lucas, you have some uh, record shattering stats about the podcast to share this week. Yeah, so we have been on this great upward climb, and that's always great to be in. Like, we've always been in a somewhere op- upward dec- incline. Ugh, I can't talk tonight. Um, we, like, have never had a point of, like, stagnation, which has been good. But the last month, uh, we've just continued to just really start exponentially growing and our last episode on uh, Electric Light Orchestra is now our best ever first week <laughs> episode. <laughs> it beat Megadeth it beat for that title. Oh, And it's, it's just really great to see that more and more people are checking us out. Um, our weekly listens overall are continuing to go up. And it's just continuing to be very reassuring to just continue to move forward because my ultimate goal is I would love to be able to do this full time and you guys are helping to make that happen. So I just want to say thank you to everyone that is supporting us, all of our patrons, uh, the people that are connecting with us on social media. I actually got a message from a gentleman not long ago uh, saying that, he just listened to our Queen Montreal episode, but that the first episode he jumped on was our U2 episode because he was looking for podcasts about U2. So um, well, he found the right one. Yeah. Yes, and and now he's he's following us on a on a weekly basis. So you kind of never know who everyone's first episode is going to be. So it's pretty cool to kind of see like people are still continuing. Like I look at the stats and. 
um, this last week, like it'll tell me what the top three episodes are on the anchor analytics page. Mm-hmm. And last week, like in the top three was still our first Pink Floyd episode. <laughs> oh my goodness. So those old ones that are continuing to just rack the numbers up are like still That was like that um, was like a year ago. Yeah. Crazy. That was that was just about a year. It was well, I'd say a little more over the year ago. I wouldn't say I probably recorded that like late July, early August last year. So it's been out for a while. Wow. So it's just really cool to kind of to see that we're continuing to have this this great momentum right now, and we get to continue that momentum with our next volume two, and a return to one of my four pillars, and that's <laughs> Iron Maiden, baby. Woo! So we uh, and also with as either of us. Well, I'm just—I'm new to Iron Maiden. Yeah, I'm new I'm, to them. I'm—I'm not—I'm going to be optimistic and say that um, you're going to have a lot of fun things to say, even just from an objective standpoint of just not being <laughs> in the metal world. Um, but I had so much fun doing the Queen live episode that I wanted to do another live music episode and so here we are with iron maiden flight 666 and what city are we in so we're actually in quite a number of cities we're actually all around the world on this album okay so this was a tour that happened in 2008 and what they did is they actually um revived their mid 80s tour almost set list like identical with a couple oh, of, a couple of tweaks how old are they and they're so at this point in their career they were in their mid 40s in 2008 because the first yeah wow. so the first album came out in 80 so they were like 20 yeah they were pretty young when they started um because right now, most of them are in their late 50s to early 60s. I think that the drummer is con- a considerable older than the rest because he's like 66 right now. So he was probably 50 by this point. Wow. Um, but the whole goal was to bring this classic vintage Maiden tour to all these places that never got to see them do that tour before. Oh, that's nice. So they went to a ton of places that they've never gotten to go to, as well as places that were physically impossible for them to get to because it was too expensive because of um, all of the logistics of getting the equipment, the crew there. So what makes this tour unique and what gives the album its name, Flight 666, is that they purchased their own 747. (laughs) That the band, the crew, and all the gear was in. I heard about that, yeah. That's pretty impressive that they brought their own crew because usually on tours, they hire out um, the crew depending on where they are in the world. Like they hire temps. 
Mm-hmm. But Iron you know, Maiden's different. You got your guys, you know. They're they're all under the umbrella of what they call the Iron Maiden family. Hmm. So they treat they they treat their guys probably among the best in the business. Just seeing all the behind the scenes stuff and just reading interview after interview, it's just like if you were able to get on the Iron Maiden family, like that's about as good as it gets because they take care of their guys very well. (laughs) Yeah. I'd do well, that. That'd be really fun. You get to fly, and I mean, I would, I would spend that's, my time this taking is, out all the brown. We also have to realize this is, this is like not a private jet. This is like a literal no. air, like a. I mean, it's big it, enough to hold an entire tour crew. Yes, like this, not just the band that's flying on this plane. It's everybody, <laughs> and and all and the, the luggage container is just full of gear. Uh huh. <laughs> So all the amps, all like Jeez. they said that they had to do this Im- incredible engineering, and the the coolest thing about it all is that Bruce Dickinson, the lead singer, is the pilot. No. Oh yeah, he has yes. like seven PhDs or something. He yeah, that's like what he does in his spare time. That's his hobby. Is he learns how to fly every aircraft imaginable, and so while everyone else is chilling in the plane he's flying the plane that's yep. a, that's probably a nice thing for him to like get done with the show and then like well i'm just gonna chill down i'm gonna calm down and just fly this 747 yeah <laughs> i'm just gonna you know fly this giant missile at supersonic speed to calm down mm-hmm. was it actually called like was the actual airliner called flight 666 Yes, and recently they they still have it, but now it's got a new name. It's called Ed Force One. Can you imagine? Eddie is the name of their mascot, so that's where that comes from. Can you imagine you mentioned... being one of the Air Force or the uh, air traffic control, and you're like, uh, "Flight six six six, you're cleared to land," and then it's literally the lead singer for for Iron Maiden, like responding to you. Yep. Uh huh. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. <laughs> That has got to be crazy. So this tour is also unique. Like at the time, this was probably the most ambitious tour that any band in any genre had ever undertaken. Uh Because this was not your typical land somewhere, then bus, you know, a certain area for a while before you fly to the next place. Every single location had at least like 500 miles of flight time in between them. Wow. So the whole point of this was to, one, show off their new plane and be able to schedule a tour that required that plane. And two, get to visit a ton of places that had never um, been able to see them before and that were logistically impossible before then to go to. Because like, if you're going to fly somewhere where you could only do one show, that it typically wasn't financially viable to like again do all of the stuff that it required like you know if you don't have your own plane that's like multiple flights trying to orchestrate to get there and all the logistics but when everyone comes in under the same plane that's under whatever schedule it wants to be at then all of a sudden it becomes possible how much were they i mean do we even know how much the tickets were because that's still a lot of money to yeah i mean 
I'm sure it was no small feat, but I actually don't know how much the tickets were. But I do know that Iron Maiden has a history of fighting uh, to get tickets as low as possible. Yeah. They're one of those bands that, like, is constantly in the media going against Ticketmaster and StubHub and, and, and trying to prevent scalping as much as possible. They're not a, you know, let's make our tickets as expensive as we can. Because the large majority of their fan base are in third world countries mm, that yeah. will literally say like, I just spent a month's worth of wages just to come see Iron Maiden. Like people that just like, they have nothing in their lives except for Maiden. And the flight 666 documentary really showcased a lot of that. And it was really cool to see. So, so um, documentary or movie. So it's a documentary. I mean, okay. movie, I guess, is a bit of a miss. So it's part, like, it's showing you, like, how they did this tour. It's all the behind the scenes of them doing it, as well as a lot of concert footage. And so, like, you know, they never really, I think maybe a couple times they would do multiple shows in the same city. But for the most part, they land somewhere. A lot of times they would just go to a completely different continent. Or they would just land in these random islands in the Pacific or, um, you know, just going to all these places that it's just like, you know, one show we're in um, New Zealand and now the next day we're going to be playing in Los Angeles. And then the next day we're going to be all the way down in uh, Brazil. Like that was like the itinerary of the type of tour they were doing. Hmm. That's that would wear me out. Yeah, I'm getting worn out just thinking about that. That would. Just... I don't know how they did it. How do you not get sick of all the airtime? Because you're flying the well, plane. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and the jet is pretty nice. <laughs> like you know, it is a 747, but they're all pretty comfortable up there. Yeah, that is true. You did mention in the previous episode about. Eddie, and you talked about how this was Ed Force One. Yeah, and and I really missed you not talking about their mascot, but I think it's fitting yeah. talking about them live and and what? yes, because that is going to tie into some of the things we'll talk about with the songs. And I'm actually wearing my Live After Death Iron Maiden T-shirt right now as we record this. Fitting, it is. Yeah. So Eddie is without a doubt the greatest mascot in music history. Okay, actually, well, no, I, I would actually, I would actually get behind that. I don't feel like. That. I mean, here's the thing: whether or not he's the coolest or the, I'm just talking about like no other mascot has ever been as effective. He's the most iconic. As, I'll tell you that. He's the most iconic. He's. Um, it's really actually been such a big benefit to the band because none of them have to be the big star. Yeah. You don't have to have the big personality. Eddie actually personifies that for them. Which is really weird to think about because, like, no other mascot really does that if you think about it. Like, name another one that does that. Mm -hmm. I know. No, no other band takes their mascot to the limits that Iron Maiden does to where this – 
character is the face of the band. It actually allows a lot of the band to kind of walk around in obscurity and not be hounded by people. Like, you know, you don't have a, a Robert Plant or a James Hetfield or a, a Dave Mustaine, Ozzy Osbourne in that band to where yeah. it's someone that even a normal person would see them and go, oh, I know who that is. And Eddie's all over the album covers, so he's he's literally the mm -hmm. face of the band in that way, too. And so when you yep. see Iron Maiden or see Eddie, you think Iron Maiden, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is definitely the the best utilized and greatest of all music mascots. I mean, everyone obviously has their personal favorites, but when you're looking at it from an objective standpoint, yeah. just no no band has even come close to to doing something with a character that Iron Maiden has. <laughs> Where did Eddie oh, come so, from? So Eddie was originally um, a kabuki mask that they just put at above the drum riser and they're very early day like before they even made their first album um and the reason he's called eddie is because his original name was ed the head <laughs> just just to kind of come up with something funny and then it just turned into eddie as time went on and you know just like in the late 70s when they were still doing their normal like bars and pubs and you know club room gigs it was just something to add a little bit of panache when they would do their their theme song iron maiden the the mask would like they would have like red smoke coming out of the mouth and the eyes mm -hmm. it was just something very simple just to give it an extra dramatic flair and then as they got more and more money it just kept evolving and then we really don't get eddie though and it's first true incarnation until that first record when he's on the cover of it and, and it, it and that's it takes a few records before we get to the point of actually it takes a lot of records before we get to the point of the lineup that we have on this live record yes yeah, so we are we do need to talk about who is involved in this record and how they got to where they are so we'll talk about what the classic lineup of Maiden is because all of them are in the lineup that we're listening to and the lineup that we currently have today. And that is Bruce Dickinson on vocals, um, Steve Harris on bass, Dave Murray and Adrian Smith on guitar and Nico McBrain on drums. So that's the classic lineup. Those are the guys that played on most of the essential records. Peace of Mind, Power Slave, Somewhere in Time, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. And then in 90, Adrian Smith, one of the two lead guitars, he left. And Janet Gers came in as his replacement. And he's right now what you would consider their third guitar player. Because when Adrian Smith returned to the band in 1999, rather than kicking Janik out for Adrian Smith to come back, they just kept him in and went from a two guitar to a three guitar. That's awesome. So it's like right now we do have the classic lineup plus another guy. It's kind of like the, the GNR concerts a couple of years ago where it was just like eight guitar players and Axel. 
Yeah, <laughs> very similar. <laughs> uh, Although I feel like Iron Maiden could probably pull off eight guitar players better than GNR. No offense to GNR, yes. they're, just, they're not that kind of music. And it's just, you know, their their music is compositionally written to accommodate for it rather than, you know, when you have everyone that's a lead guitar player, it's a lot more thought is put into how are we going to make all these pieces fit together. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they do a very good job of it. Not many bands could successfully pull off more than two lead guitarists. Yes. And really... In a way, they actually almost have four guitar players because Steve Harris really plays his bass like a guitar. Yeah, because yeah. He, he has really fast fingers and he'll do that galloping and and play lines. And he plays a right. Yeah, he plays a lot too. of melodic lines, and he rarely ever plays on the low strings. He's usually playing mid to high most of the time. Because there's a lot. Yeah, I, I know you've mentioned that in a previous episode. There's a lot of those riffs that go from. Uh, between E and D and C, and so it's just a lot easier to play there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then of so course, hey. most of the time, yeah, most of the time he's playing on the middle of the neck rather than low. So, um, so yeah, that's the lineup that we're looking at throughout this show and throughout this tour and the album that we're looking at is those um, six guys. Okay. Wow. So let's let's talk about what Iron Maiden is as a live group. And I'm going to go ahead and start things off with a bold statement. And whether you agree on it or not is fine. We can maybe debate it a little bit if you have different opinions. But I'm just going to go ahead and say that I believe the Iron Maiden is the greatest live metal band of all time. Yes, you have said that before, and I... You know, the jury's still out for me. I think that Metallica puts on a good show. I think that if you're to consider Ghost a metal band, that they would be a contender. But I, I wouldn't say that a Ghost show would be a metal show. In the, same, yeah. in the same way that an Iron Maiden show would be a metal show. Why would you say that mm-hmm. Iron Maiden is be, uh, is a better live show than Metallica? I'll I'll get into that because I will say that if any one metal band can give them a run for their money, it's Metallica. Oh, for sure. I would say that it's actually fairly close between the two of them. But or Alice Cooper. Uh, yeah, um, Iron Maiden they really remind me a lot of the way that queen approaches live music. I've, as I've kind of really dug into it and watched a lot of their live videos, I'm seeing that there's a big similarity. Um, Bruce Dickinson absolutely fills that Freddie Mercury front man position. It's true. Where he, he is a dynamic front man and that's something that metallica even though james hetfield is a great front man he is in a lot of ways limited to what he can do because he is also playing rhythm guitar and he's just he's Um, not a chaotic front man yeah and i mean he's also whenever he sings he has to be standing still in front of a mic stand because of the fact that he is uh playing guitar 
where Bruce Dickinson has no limitations. He doesn't play an instrument. He just has the microphone, and therefore, he has props that he can use. He has the entire stage that he is exploring. Yep. He is someone that literally every inch of the stage will be touched, and and they have, and probably within the span of thirty seconds, they have that huge multi-tiered stuff going on yes i would say also that iron maiden has the best stage design and set of any metal band now do they do the uh circular stage or the stage in the center of the audience kind of thing no they don't which metallica does use that very very well but metallica wins on the set design no stage but here's the but here's the thing though yes maybe on a a a spare stage but you also got to look at the amount of stuff that iron maiden brings to the table just to look at all of the sets all of the giant the banners and they have they literally have animatronic monsters and eddies coming in and out of the set throughout the whole show that's true like it's this it's almost like a broadway production it's like spinal of tap, just but like for real yeah exactly uh but it works yeah <laughs> well cuz they were the ones metallica Me- metallica's um approach is much much different it's very minimalistic yeah they they will occasionally have their things that they use but for the most part it relies on them just kind of them themselves and while again they do it very well, Iron Maiden just brings this theatrical element to it. That's just so like I I've been to two Iron Maiden shows. And like you get there and it's almost like you're transported to another world. The stuff like the attention to detail that they put into every song, like their current tour that they were on before COVID destroyed everything was their Legacy of the Beast tour which was pretty much very similar in what this Flight 666 tour was um, where it's just them kind of combing through a lot of their back catalog but they're specifically um, putting a emphasis on some deeper cuts that haven't been played live very often or in a long time mm-hmm. And every single song had a different, like, jaw-dropping eye-opener set piece to it. Every song? Every song. Dang. And so, like, it was just, like, amazing. These guys are, are getting quite old now, and they're still putting such attention into what they're doing. And just every inch being put to good use. Um, and so just there's a there's just a there's a bigness, there's a grandness, but at the same time, there's such an inclusivity to what they're doing. When you watch an Iron Maiden crowd and see their interaction with the guys on the stage. It's like it's the same feeling you get with Queen where you feel like everyone's together, everyone's connected. Yeah, and they'll all sing the lead lines to Fear of the Dark. Uh-huh. Man, getting to do that was a highlight 
of my life. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing Iron Maiden play live, but we did mention this in a previous episode. I was a band that played the Trooper. And of course, you have that kind of battle cry chorus, you know, the whoa, you know, everyone yeah. in the in the uh, uh, are- it wasn't even arena. It was like a half club, half bar, half somebody's mm-hmm. garage. Um, <laughs> but it was it was great. But uh, towards the beginning of the performance, you know, maybe like a third of the people knew the song well enough to be able to sing along. But by the end, mm-hmm. everyone was going along with it, whether they had heard of the song or liked the song before or not. Mm-hmm. Because they write songs that go well with their live performance. And that's like, that's another thing too. And you mentioned that in your, in your previous episode, they write for the arena, you know, they do. And, and it works so well because it's just, it's, it just, you're you're right. It's like Queen. It just it just gels. To me, they are the metalized version of Queen. And they even, I see so much similarity in they it. They even wrote the the metal version of Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> well, okay, but like you know, what would be the metal version of Bohemian Rhapsody if not Hallowed Be Thy Name? Right? Probably one. Yeah. But like, it, it's not the same. It, yeah, it's not the same. Not the same. I here's the thing. I am in no way gonna dog Metallica. In fact, no. Next time that we do a Metallica episode, we're gonna look at them as a live band. Good. And it's just it's to me they're very similar, but I think I believe that Iron Maiden has the edge. Mm-hmm. It's but it's but it's a but it's a slight edge because Metallica is an incredible live band. I think it's I think it's a difference between what you're wanting live. And if you're wanting to just go and listen to music and loud music and scream and have a good time, then Metallica will definitely fill that. But if you're wanting to go and get entertained and have the band interact with you even if you're way out in the stadium and you feel like you're there with them and you feel like everyone around you is singing together and you're all part of this wonderful monstrosity of sound then iron maiden's it if that makes sense yeah i just i think that um iron maiden fulfills both of those and and just to me just just, yeah and they were really the first metal band to ever really get to that point Uh uh-huh metallica gets more of the attention because they did it in america which is like i guess what you could say the biggest market but um iron maiden laid the groundwork for that with their world slavery tour um when they did the power slave uh, album cycle like that's one of the defining metal tours of all time where they just like you know bef- when metal was mainly just you know hair metal yeah. you know they had conquered really the rest of the world at that point and 
you look at the the videos of them on that tour in 84 and it's just like it's on par to what some of the biggest bands do now wow they like really what this uh flight 66 tour which i'll start using the correct term for the tour which is the somewhere back in time tour (laughs) and it's pretty much a faithful recreation of what they were doing on that 84 tour obviously again with some um tweaks like obviously fear of the dark wasn't written at that time but they still have that wasted years wasn't written at that point so they do add in a couple of essential greatest hits but for the most part you know they're they're looking at the you know iron maiden to power slave block i didn't know they had a self-titled yeah the first record is just called and they have a they did what black sabbath did where they've got an iron maiden iron maiden iron maiden yeah Yep, that that I or the uh, song I did figure that out by the end of the set, but uh, we'll get there. We'll get. There. Oh yeah, we'll get there. And then let's also kind of just talk about what their what their style is, because they do something very unique and something that I feel really adds to their live show. What, what do you mean by that? Uh, and something that really sets them apart from Metallica, and I'm not going to say that one's right or the other. It's a it's a, another stylistic choice. Right. When you see Metallica play live, they are pretty tight. Yes, they're a tight group. Well, okay. Um, they try to be. They try to be. Back in the they're 80s going and 90s, for it. They certainly were. Oh, yes. Um, and I would say the main reason they're not as much now is just because Lars is kind of slowly becoming a worse and worse drummer. Well, and Kirk just doesn't care anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Iron Maiden very intentionally kind of plays more loose. I have they're, noticed that now that you say it. They're not a super tight band, but that's... but when you listen to them in the studio, they absolutely are. I wouldn't say they are in the studio. I, would... I mean, as in they're not they're... that loose. They're super, they're super, super jammy. I yeah. mean, I would, I would put a lot of the songs that you put on your first Iron Maiden set in the jam category. It, it, it sounds like they're all going over to, you know, Bruce's garage and putting their instruments on and playing a song that they wrote that they definitely have a structure for and they all know where they are, but they're just kind of having fun with it, you know, as Mm -hmm. opposed to, you know, play the riff technically correct and, you know, these 16th notes and whatever. It's just a bunch of galloping and, and almost strumming, but with that kind of metal edge to it. Yeah. Um, I will say that they're definitely tighter in the studio than they are live. Yeah. But when you get to live, there's very much this this fluidity to it. But um, I can you can tell that it's intentional because what they're doing is they're creating a very loose, fun atmosphere up on the stage. 
and you yeah. see this a lot when you see the footage during um this tour is that they're like cracking jokes they're not like taking themselves too too seriously enough so to like you know not make it look like they don't care isn't going welcome to our fortress of evil and you know like trying campy joke yeah he you know he's getting on goofy costumes and throwing stuff around stage um they're doing all like uh janet gers when i one of the coolest aspects he brought to the band is all of his guitar tricks that he does That's like awesome. when he when he's throwing his guitar up in the air or swinging it around, or he's always playing with his guitar held up high in the air, um, constantly flipping his hands upside down. You know, he's very much just putting on a show. And then of course you've got Steve Harris. He's, you know, he's using his bass rifle, um, move. And, um, just everyone's smiling. Everyone's having a good time. Like they're, they're not this like they're not up there just going, Ugh, we're tough, we're dark, <laughs> we're heavy metal. You have to take us seriously. It's not Slayer. No, uh, uh-uh. which that would probably be a very good polar opposite. Um, so all of that combines of just this great time, uh, this 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 party on stage. You and are, when you combine, you are really go ahead. making the case that they are metal queen. Yeah, you're really making exactly. this case. I, golly, I didn't think you would be able to prove it to me at the beginning of this episode, but you're <laughs> you're right. It's like they do portray the idea of just having fun with music. Mm-hmm. It feels like all the best live bands have have a way of. Like not taking enjoying seriously, yeah, yeah, and because that ultimately that bleeds into the audience. Yeah, the audience starts having fun. Yeah, and I will also, um, and this is another thing where man, it's really really close, but um, as far as you know, Iron Maiden is absolutely one of the biggest metal bands in the world. And so is Metallica. Those are kind of really the two that I think are the ones that are constantly contending for the top spot. The thing that obviously Metallica has a much bigger advantage in is the the more household name aspect that they have. Yeah. But really, as I'm doing more research, that's mostly an American thing. When you look at pretty, and it's again, it's exactly the same as Queen until fairly recently. You ask what the rest of the world, what the greatest metal band of all time is, they all say without a doubt it's Iron Maiden. Huh. But when you go to America, they'll tell you it's Metallica. See, In the that. same way you. You go to America and ask them what's the greatest rock band of all time, they'll say the Beatles. But you go ask the rest of the world, they'll say it was Queen. Huh. 
No. Okay. Well, I think I think I see what you're what you're getting at there. But and and it's kind of like uh, when you know when your friend goes and does the karaoke at the bar, it's like you definitely think that he's the one having the most fun and you enjoy his you know getting everybody to sing along with him more than somebody you don't know kind of thing uh-huh. yeah uh, and and i think that has to factor into it but also it has to factor into it you know kind of going back to iron maiden being such such a good life band versus you know slayer because slayer has that technicality it's like you can listen to you know a the greatest vocalist of all time sing a beautiful song you know all you want but as soon as you get somebody to go up and sing like don't stop believing or whatever and totally not care and totally get everyone singing along with them they're going to remember that and they're going to want to see that again and they're going to think that you're good not because you're good but because you made them feel good (laughs) yeah i i see what you're getting at there no, I'm, and I'm not saying that Iron Maiden bad at all. Like, I know, I know. So whenever, that's, whenever that's, you gel that's the, the two, those are the lines I was reading between. That's, whenever you gel the two, and whenever you have great musicians and a great frontman and a great vocalist that knows his crap, paired with a showman, mm-hmm. paired with somebody that also is in tune with their own crowd. I think that's what would probably because I've seen some clips of Metallica live and it's not that they're bad musicians or that they're unaware of the crowd. It's just that Iron Maiden just takes it to another level. Mm-hmm. And and I think that part of it is just the music that they write because the way that, I mean, if, if you've seen the the Metallica performance in San Diego in 1992... That one in particular, really great performance of theirs. They're tight. They play great. They sound great. The audience is right there with them. But you can tell that the audience is enjoying songs like Creeping Death more because they can sing the the die chant. Mm-hmm. But every Iron Maiden song has some lead guitar line or some vocal line that everybody can just sing along to. And everybody's looking forward to that part. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, yeah, here comes the trooper chorus, or here comes the fear of the dark line, or here comes the end of Hallowed Be Thy Name. Let's all sing it together, you know? Yep. That's exactly. I think so, we're harping on the same thing. Yeah, so, I think I think this is a good time to go ahead and uh, take a break and move on to the next section. We can so, talk specifics. Oh, yeah. Uh, So when we come back, we're going to get into the six Iron Maiden songs that we have picked for this episode. So stay tuned. We'll be right back.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about Iron Maiden and what they're like as a live band. We definitely had a live debate as to whether or not Iron Maiden or Metallica was a better live band for many different reasons. And now it is time to talk about the six songs that we have selected for this episode. So if this is your first time, welcome Please listen to part one of Iron Maiden so you have a little bit more context, but I'll have Lucas explain to you anyway what we mean by this segment of six songs. Yeah, so these six songs are going to be our opportunity to talk more in depth and specifically about things that we talked about in the first section. So um, with this being a volume two, we're not as concentrated on if you've never listened to Iron Maiden before. So uh, we do have a good combination of some um, very big, iconic songs of theirs with some deeper cuts. Um, So if you want to get a good introduction to Iron Maiden, go check out our first episode on them. And um, if you want to listen to these songs... There is a link in the description of the episode. And also what I'm trying to do with these songs is give them a nice flow, give them a nice feel to where, you know, there's a there's a good catharsis by the time you get to the end of it. The songs transition as well as you can, especially with uh with live albums. It can be a little difficult to to string them along neat. Um, I tried to do the best that I could. So hopefully you enjoy the songs and our discussions on them. And we're going to jump right in to my favorite Iron Maiden song of all time. No way! This is your favorite Iron Maiden song? Yes, and it's not the one that I will say is objectively the best, which also uh, I do have on Spotify an Iron Maiden song ranked playlist where i've taken all of their songs ranked them for worst to best so we'll talk about that in our discussions as well so is the number one iron maiden song on this list no it was on the previous one and it it was it was my favorite iron maiden song right yes how would be that name of course it was because i'm just i'm that good by the way i guess i can say that um the songs that were on our previous episode were Ace is High, Two Minutes to Midnight, The Trooper, Run to the Hills, Fear of the Dark, and Hallowed Be Thy Name. Probably about as good of a first serving as you could possibly get as far as just like iconic, all iconic songs. Oh, I'd, I'd say, yeah. Just, well, I w- I'm really surprised that you waited until this episode for... Uh, this first song for number of the, the number beast. of the beast, yeah, uh, it's because it didn't fit thematically with the first one. But it, it's all it, about the flow, baby. It it's, is a great first song, though. Yeah, it's it's such a good way to open 
it's I it makes me really sad. Is this the they... actual opener in the concert? Yes. Oh, really? No, no, it's not the opener to oh. the concert. No. Um, that was Aces High, which I used as the opener for the last set, or else yeah. I would have totally done Aces High at the beginning. Because but, it does have a really amazing intro. Because before the song even starts, you get the big, iconic Winston Churchill speaks for, where he's going, "We'll fight in the fields, we'll fight in the landing grounds, we will fight in the hills and in the cities. We shall never surrender." All and of their songs Aces are High about just like right war. There. <laughs> That's it's a very popular subject for them, <laughs> but they don't approach war in the same way that other ones do where it's about, you know, I'm going to kill. It's not like Slayer's War Ensemble where it's just about, you know, the final swing is not a drill. It's how many people I can kill. But it's, um, they more talk about it from a historical standpoint. Like they're talking about specific battle maneuvers or they're citing, they're citing, yeah, specific, um, battles and talking about historically what's going on they take it to a more um like they're 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 teaching you about it it's history core exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness but band name right there we're talking uh-huh. we're talking now about number of the beast which this yes. song is not historically significant it is biblically significant i think well kind of so yeah okay. you do have that that iconic intro woe to you O earth and sea for the devil sends the beast with wrath because he knows that time is short let him who hath understanding reckon the number of the beast which is a human number its number is 666 yep so this song is actually based off of a nightmare that Steve Harris had. No way. Yeah. Of course it is. That's and the whole stuff is. The whole song is actually and this is man they got blasted in the early 80s for this. And it's probably the biggest reason why they never got big in America was because not only with this song but the album itself being Number of the Beast. Yeah. Um it got conservative america like all up in a frenzy claiming they were satanic it was a satanic song that they're promoting devil worship that they're telling their listeners to take the mark of the beast no which is not at all what the song is about you need to listen to the lyrics oh my goodness it's actually a condemnation of it and it's about a man that witnesses a secret satanic rite and actually calls the authorities to put a stop to it but is starting to now be haunted in his dreams by satanic images and he be starts to become paranoid and he he keeps seeing the 666 everywhere he goes and it's this fear of seeing it, something he shouldn't have seen and now um he's paying for it well that's actually kind of intense yeah now but man they got such a great song out of it the whole album (laughs) you have to ask because i never got this question answered for whatever reason it it sounds like it's a concept album no not at all okay 
Never mind. Never mind. No, it is not. And that question was never asked. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, no. Um, but I, I remember listening to this song, not this version, obviously, definitely the, the album version in high school when, uh, you know, I'd have to drive people to soccer games or whatever because I was the only one who, you know, had a car, you know, at the time or whatever. And um, this was one of the songs that me and some of my friends would put on because it it has the speed that makes you it feels like highway but like mm-hmm. it, it's in a weird way it's talking about something so sinister and i never even knew because like that's not what the that's not what the music felt like to me yeah the music to me Which felt is... like oh go into battle and fight the demons yeah <laughs> yeah and that's just that's very classic maiden song composition right um this is actually one of their songs that doesn't follow the uh the edc uh formula it's actually centered around d and it's more of a d c b flat thing okay well that's like in music theory land that it's the pretty much the same thing, thing. it's just a, it's just a it's a step down <laughs> this is a six minor five four right there they love that six minor five four they do but they've gotten a lot out of it um so i do put this at number three on my ranked list and to me this song is just very special to me because it was not the first Maiden song I ever heard, but it was the first Maiden song that I ever loved. Really? And it's the song that made me a Maiden fan to where I heard this song and I was like, I got to find more Maiden to listen to. It's the song that set me along that path. And there's just something about it. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. You know, there's not a lot of extra sections. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... You know, it's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, solo, out. And, but it's just, they, there's so much power to it. There's so much, um, just, I don't, I can't even think of another word to say, but it's just, it's powerful. Every time I listen to it, I just get filled with this, this energy and this, you know this feeling of just i want to just go take over the world there's yep. there's something about and i think it has to do with the way that bruce dickinson sings yes and and it's everything to do with his vocal melody uh, in american metal you know a lot of time if you're writing a metal melody vocal melody that was super simple and you wanted to harp on a single note you'd either pick the root or like the minor third Right. So, you know, for the root, it'd be like Inner Sandman. Right. But for mm-hmm. like the minor third, think like that part in Holy Wars when he goes, you know, wage the war on organized crime. Like that's a that's a minor third. And so that's that's the American metal sound. But that British metal sound that Iron Maiden really like pushed forward. And anytime anyone says, does this, it sounds just like Iron Maiden because it's so unique is he'll go to the fifth and it kind of has that, you know, universal intro, like the bum, 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 bum. And so it sounds grandiose already. Mm-hmm. And he, he, 
he's playing off that idea. And this song in particular, it it compounds that because it's a major melody as well. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. the guitar line's doing it the whole time. Yeah. Exactly. So so all those things combined really feel triumphant. And I think I haven't listened to this song in years. And hearing it live is even cooler because the drums are mixed so well. But like that, yeah, and whenever that hits, you're just like, yeah, <laughs> it feels so good. Whenever <laughs> that hits, uh huh, it's such a release because it's a tension building all the way up to that point. So let's talk about this song live and in the context of what we're what's going on here. Oh. And and this is where Ethan, you can kind of start to let us know what you're noticing as you're listening to it. As soon as that quote starts, everyone knows what it yeah. is. <laughs> yep. Crazy. I did too. Yeah, it's uh to me again. This comes more mid of middle of the concert, but. It just felt right for me because, again, I was kind of, you know, I wasn't able to use the actual opening of the concert because I already used it in the previous episode. But I I noticed that uh, it seems like Iron Maiden's, the fans that are here, it's like Iron Maiden fans are like, I don't want to say that they're like more respectful because that's a weird way to say it, but it's like pop, like pop star fans it's like you can hear the crowd like screaming the whole time you know what i mean yeah uh-huh. like you're kind of used to just hearing the like in the background like the entire time uh-huh going yeah on. this yeah. it's like it hits and you hear like some some like excited screams for like three seconds and then everyone is talking and then and everyone's the, everyone's and then chanting the guitar, it together and then whenever the guitar line kicks in everyone screams for like three seconds and then no one screams and everyone sings uh-huh like and the like the rest of the song i i i really did notice i was like there's not a lot of crowd bleed because they're all singing it <laughs> yes. yes that's the kind of experience you have when you go see them you sing along with him that's crazy that it it yeah I almost I want to go see Iron Maiden now. You're making me want to go see Iron Maiden. Man, it's the the second time that I saw them in particular is a contender for the best show that I've ever been to. With um Cold with see, with seeing Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's there's a lot of nostalgia to that Metallica show because that was kind of like my first metal show and that was at the time when Metallica was my favorite band and there was a lot of um, a lot of emotion and nostalgia built around that um, but as far as just from a pure like the second time I saw Maiden I knew every single song that they played I sang along to every single song and the, it's the best stage show i've ever seen wow that would be that would be a trick that'd be a treat not a trick we're getting (laughs) close to halloween if we can get corona to let up hopefully they can get back on tour and we can (laughs) go see them i i would be willing to wear a hazmat suit 
I would be okay with that. Me uh, too. That'd be a cool concert. It would Everyone be yeah. a crowd cool wearing concert. a hazmat concert, hazmat suit. That's that's still more of an American thrash metal idea to have the hazmat suit. <laughs> yeah. Biohazard, uh-huh. Megadeth, even Anthrax, literally Anthrax, whatever. Um, gosh, where were we going with that? You you took me to Anthrax and I just zoned out. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, Ethan, I want you to tell me your opinions about Nico McBrain as a drummer, since you're a drummer. It's, I mean, so I'm assuming that they're not playing to click. No, absolutely not. Because the because they want it to feel more live. Yeah, they're kind of how I talked about when we did our Foo Fighters episode. They're much a band that's like not as concerned about if they make a mistake which i mean obviously they rehearse a lot but at the same time like if they make one they're not gonna like they're gonna just play it off as a oops haha we're just humans just like you guys i think i think drum wise on this song first off they sound amazing (laughs) but like honestly like the drums just sound so good they do um it's it's a weird thing to say but it's I, i I know that he's good because he's just playing everything that I would assume that a drummer would play, and not not uh-huh. in like a ba- not in like a bad predictable way, like in like a like even on like the like that old that old break thing. Yeah, uh huh. Just the way that he's like accenting the bell on the ride, and the way that he's like hitting with him, like he's just the kick pattern and everything. It's it's nice. He he stands out when he's supposed to stand out, and then he kind of like sits back. It uh, saying in the pocket sounds weird for a metal band, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> I get what you mean. Um, like he kind of he, everyone in the band seems to really understand when to like push it on their instrument, yes. and when to like not push it on their instrument, exactly. and when to kind of show out and when to kind of take a back seat and when to do a vocal run and when to like not do a vocal run and you know the bass player is supposed to go up really high and do some stupid thing and when he's supposed to kind of come down it's that's nice just to have play and but they've been playing together for so long yeah like in all in all of these songs it's just like you're just like anytime that someone is like supposed to be front and center Mm -hmm. like they're front and center yeah and there's mm-hmm. no it's it's really clean like I, in, in a weird way because i know they're not supposed to like you're like they're not really going for like a clean sound but ironically like they've just been playing together for so long like even though they're not on click and they're probably a little bit more touch and go at, in terms of like um being right on together and not like since they're yeah not on click like it's still like it's still they just have a natural feel for each other i i will yeah. say this that it's it's the cliche of guitar players as they get older they're not going to be able to play those solos as fast and as well in in a live setting anymore but like iron maiden pulls off those live solos i mm-hmm. i they're not you know perfectly to the t amazing just like the studio record or whatever 
but they still have the energy and the drive behind it and and you can tell that whoever's got that solo is still putting the same emotion into it as it was on the album even if they miss a few notes Mm -hmm. you know inevitably you're gonna it's live it's still like none of the souls were lacking anything except for just some stupid notes yeah that's kind of that's kind of the vibe that i got guitar wise at least and and also guitars are just they sound bad live live just they always do i don't know what's about it but (laughs) and bass always sounds a good life but like guitars they just i don't know soundmen need to step up and get good guitar live sounds it's because yeah it's because um um you gotta scoop them in they'll sound good now because everyone's starting to use kempers oh wow like everybody's gotta use kempers got a gear snob over here Oh, yeah, I'm just saying. Like literally, you can program your amp right into the soundboard. Like, come on now, <laughs> it's gonna sound better. <laughs> yeah, no, but I think it. I think it has to do with the fact that they have to boost the mids so you cut through the audience and you cut through the rest of the instruments. When you're in, when you're in the studio, you can control exactly the EQ at every moment. You know throughout the whole album or whatever. And so you can get away with having a more intense guitar tone that has a little bit less here and a little bit more here and whatever. But when you're live, you kind of have to play nice with the EQ spectrum. But, and and for, for a band like Pantera, that could be catastrophic. Now for them, they pull it off, but but somebody who relies on sound that much, that can end up being a big deal. But Iron Maiden doesn't, they never relied on sound. They have, in my mind, they have bad mixes on their studio albums, but it's not about the mix for them. Mm-hmm. They, they, could, they could release a demo level of mixing and it would still be some of the greatest songs that we've ever heard. It's more about it's they're very much a sum greater than the parts. Yeah. And there's an energy behind their songwriting that I think transcends the mix. Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, I've never really listened to an Iron Maiden song or album and gone, man, the album just sounds really good. I don't ever listen to it and go, wow, it's really bad. But it's it's not like a Pink Floyd where I'm listening to it. I'm just like, man, this just sounds really yeah. good. <laughs> or like a Meta- even a Metallica record. Like, you know, you listen to like Master Puppets and you're just like, man, this just sounds good. Yeah. Um, but it's just it's, – it's almost like just with Iron Man, it doesn't matter. Because it's – the performance is just – totally punch everything up several notches iron maiden would never write sad but true no uh uh-uh. there's not enough energy behind it there's and they don't enough, really there's not enough fun it's and it's also the reason why they rarely ever write any ballads yeah there's just and not the need for it usually end in a, a high tempo scenario yeah I'm also very, in my opinion, that's how they should always end. But whatever. I, I'm very <laughs> impressed with the bass player. 
Oh, oh yeah, for sure. I would say I would say probably more than anyone else in the. Well, band. there's a reason why he's my favorite bass player of all time. Uh, and I I also don't really know enough about the history of metal in general to like say that he was pioneering a style or anything. But he definitely was. But like he is doing a lot more than uh other bass players that were in that genre at this time like in, in terms so, of like expression then let me take a little bit of time to explain steve harris so steve harris is the leader of the band it's not bruce dickinson it's not the guitar players like he's he's really the only band that i know where the basses isn't also the lead singer where just the bassist is the leader of the band (laughs) like you know like you have something like the police where yes sting is the bass player but he's also the vocalist so that makes more sense that he's going to be the leader um you know he's he is the founding member um he's the one that started this whole thing it's because of him that iron maiden is where they are all final decisions must be filtered through him. He's also the main songwriter of the band. And so he, a lot of these songs he writes, and he actually writes a lot of the guitar parts as well on the bass. <laughs> Not on the guitar, on the bass. He'll like play on the bass. Okay, play something like this. And of course, you know, they'll filter it through to yeah. make it sound like them. But, you know... He, it's not as much a. I've got a basic skeleton. Let's jam. It's kind of more. He sits down and compositionally figures yeah. out just about everything that's going to happen. That's probably you know, why the even, bass takes such a lead. Like even on the. Like yeah, I'm just like he's playing that. <laughs> yeah, because he wrote it's that. Probably because he wrote it on the bass. It, it, yeah, it's, it's less of a good. Because usually it's like a guitar player will do something and tell the bass player to try to copy it. And this is like mm-hmm. the bass player writing it and telling the guitar player to try to copy it. Yep. That's exactly I what's happening. That. So that's that's a big reason why just he was a and still is just an enormously talented and visionary bassist. Um I mean, I guess, you know, he he did pick up on what people like Getty Lee and Geezer Butler and and those guys were doing but he really just brought forward just he's got the perfect balance of lead playing but at the same time making it so rhythmic yeah he's never playing like these out of you know legato lines or you know something that doesn't fit like no matter what he's playing, it's always still propulsing the rhythm forward. He just has this perfect sense of combining rhythm and melody to where he's not just playing a chord sequence, but he's got something in there that's adding just this little melodic component to it. Yeah. And just having these perfect moments throughout the songs, like, like when he goes into that high section right at the end of the second solo before the third verse comes in, where he goes in the like it's something very simple that's again just keeping that rhythm for but he just introduces this really cool thing that most bass players are not going to think to do that well they might think but 
it's just they won't end up executing it the way that he does. Uh-huh. Like, if you were to compare, like, someone like Cliff Burton. Mm-hmm. Cliff Burton, whenever he has lead lines, they're not super rhythmic. He's actually kind of playing it more like, you know, like, think of something like Call of Cthulhu. When he's doing all his crazy wah parts or, you know, he's not really contributing anything rhythmically. It's mostly a lead uh, sound. It's very, very interesting that you mentioned Cliff. I mean, we have been talking about Metallica this whole episode. I know. Um, But uh, Cliff Burton's father was going through, He there was a short little you know, video interview with him and he was going through a lot of Cliff's old stuff. And a lot of his records was just, it was just Iron Maiden after Iron Maiden after Iron Maiden record. And he would Mm -hmm. just learn all their songs and play all their songs. And, and he probably got a lot of his style and a lot of the way he thought about bass from Iron Maiden. He was really the first true lead bass player in metal. And I would say that, all of the great lead bass uh, metal bass players, they all pick up from what Steve Harris did. I absolutely do. I mean, I find naturally just in the way that I play, even when, Ethan, whenever we're playing at church together, Mm -hmm. like the way that I'll construct some of the parts I do, I think of it through a, how would Steve Harris play this? Yes. (laughs) You know, we have been talking about this song for like 25 minutes. Yes, we have. We should play with the next song, which is play with Madness. Play with Madness. I like this transition. I, I will also say, even though I looked at the set ahead of time, which I know I'm not supposed to, but I don't know any of the songs anyways. Yeah. I was just like, okay, cool. I Going from Number of the Beast, which is the only song that I know, I was pretty surprised to hear the the harmony at the beginning <laughs> yeah well who all sings <laughs> so it's mainly adrian smith who is one of the lead guitarists and then steve harris just contributing just a voice but he's actually a terrible singer and he admits that himself it's more just to give more of a vocal presence but yeah. Adrian Smith is definitely the one that you're hearing the most because he actually is a good singer. Hmm. I would probably say that this is my favorite song. In this oh, song. really? Interesting. Mm-hmm. So a little, a little about this song. This is off of the Seventh Son of the Seventh Son record, which is a concept album. Now, and now give me a time frame for this one. So this one was eighty eight. So this was this was way after their run of three. No, I would say that this is this the seventh is kind of considered the last album of the classic run. Okay. Because the classic run would be considered Number of the Beast through Seventh Son. Okay. That's kind of the that's like the the classic era. And Seventh Son is like really, it's a contender to be my favorite Maiden record. It's a super proggy album. Really? But this song is kind of like the um, the nice, lean, mean single off of the album that they did a music video for. And 
was kind of, I guess you could say, the hit off of the album. Again, Iron Maiden doesn't really have any hits, but it's the most accessible song on the album. I will say, when I first heard this song, it reminded me of Van Halen on Hollywood Boulevard, Jimmy Kimmel, you know, back in like 2015. Golly, that was a long time ago now. I haven't, I haven't seen that. It's, it's really great if you don't pay any attention to David Lee Roth. <laughs> and I don't mean that. I don't mean that in like David Lee Roth sucks. But like he just he had a bad night. He started off with a nose injury that he oh. self inflicted on stage in the introduction. Like they were having the trash can opening, he was spinning around a. Uh, a mic stand and hit himself in the nose and had to get it, you know, patched Ouch. up within thirty <laughs> seconds. And and it's of course it's David Lee Roth already, and now he's sixty years old, so he can be even more pitchy. But mm-hmm. but the rest of the band is fantastic, and so it it had that feeling of because I, I don't know. To me, it sounded like, and I don't mean this in any negative way objectively, maybe like, obviously Ethan loved this song, and I'm sure, Lucas, you loved this song too. I think this one was the weakest one for me because it sounded like Bruce Dickinson was phoning it in for this hmm. And that that's that's the feeling I got was the rest of the band was really pushing this song forward, but Bruce Dickinson just wasn't kind of there. And maybe if I saw it, I would. Yeah, when you see it, it, he's actually doing quite a bit on stage. Okay, then, and it's yeah. it's a song that he's really. This is a song that he's encouraging the the crowd to sing along with, and um. And it's it's a when you listen to the the studio recording, it's very much a very simple vocal song. It's it's you know the it's not meant to have a lot going on. But yeah, I can I can see your point there. Yeah, and and it's just I'm sure this was probably kind of later in the night. Their voices are kind of getting shot. Yeah, this is a bit later in the show. Uh, and but they still hold up they still hit the notes you know Mm -hmm. whether or not you know they sound sweet and pure and amazing and beautiful and they meld wonderfully they're still hitting the notes they're still getting the harmonies and they're still getting the correct lyrics and and putting the music out yeah even though maybe it sounded like to me that that bruce dickinson was phoning it in and you're telling me no he wasn't if you if you watched it, it makes sense there's still the professionalism of them continuing to want to put on a good show, even though everyone's already bought tickets and they've already watched the first set and, you know, half the people have already heard their favorite song already. You know? Mm-hmm. So, Ethan, uh, walk me through why this is your pick for your favorite. Well, I think that... I think just if you looked at if you look at all the parts individually, like the verse and the chorus and the, that, the guitar solo break, you know? Yeah. That great tempo change. Yeah. Like, honestly, (laughs) I know they're not on click. So like the chorus, like 
always has a tendency to like way ramp up maybe they do that on purpose but like the chorus like ramps up ramps up ramps up and then but like the verses like that they have that yeah which is a great way to like pace it you know Mm -hmm. i just think that man the chorus is so dang catchy it is a great chorus yeah. So the da 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 da, and the yeah, that little that lead guitar. like, but like the key. I guess they have a keys player. I never even thought about it. Yeah, because that was that was the time in the '80s when they were starting to put keys in in their songs. Because they're the winner, 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 winner. And then, but they all hit the yeah ooh that's really tight <laughs> yeah I don't know it's just fun they they do keep doing the to me it sounds like it's like a one flat seven four like the that that was appearing a lot uh-huh <laughs> but but I don't even care on this song well, uh, I'll explain a little bit of kind of what the song's about and kind of okay. where it fits in. So, like I said, this was off of a concept record. And um, do you guys know what that term seventh son of a seventh son means? No. What that means in kind of folklore? and I will pretend that I don't know so that you will explain it to me. But so I do know. The legend was is that if you are the seventh son of a seventh son, that you have um, clairvoyant powers and other supernatural abilities. Wow! That you know you can see the future. You can you have t- uh, telekinetic abilities. You can read people's minds. You can um, pretty much you are considered this mythical, powerful figure. But of course, you know in ancient times they kind of consider that to be like demonic and and so what the album is about is the first half of the album is about the father of the seventh son so the 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 first seventh son and he has six sons already and he knows that the seventh is coming and he has been given a um a premonition of an impending apocalypse that will occur once the seventh son of a seventh son is born and so this song actually comes early in the album it's the third song on the record where he is trying to make sense of the vision that he has been given and he's asking uh, an old mystic to tell him what his vision means and the mystics telling him you know you're dabbling in powers that you can't control that you know no, man is not meant to see the future man is not meant to um to try and understand these things that you'll be driven mad and that this is like some so, dream theater type stuff yeah, Dream Theater, I feel, gets a lot of influence from that record. Because it's a very, again, it's a very proggy record. I kind of like this. I kind of want to listen to this now. Oh, it's a great record. You are you are stacking up the number of records <laughs> of Iron Maiden that I want to go listen to. I might <laughs> yeah. just have a marathon Iron Maiden session after this episode. We're not even, like, 
halfway through the set. Like yeah. what? <laughs> Song two. Oh. <laughs> uh huh. Oh, I knew this would happen. That that is that is really oh, okay. I had no idea there was so much behind this song. Yeah. And so the song's basically like him saying like whose perspective is it from it's from the from the seventh son so from he's seventh son i scream i scream aloud to the old man don't lie and don't say to you and don't know i said you'll pay for this mischief in this world or the next oh and he cast me with a freezing glance and the hellfire raged in his eyes he said you want to know the truth son i'll tell you the truth your soul is gonna burn in a lake of fire so that's pr- that. That verse pretty much gives you the gist of what the story is in this song. Hmm. Okay. This song is another song where it's pretty obvious now, like knowing that the bass player writes all the songs. Yeah. Well, actually, he did not write this song. <gasps> oh, that that so solo I... section is so <laughs> busy, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's got a great bass line throughout that. Um, this was actually written by Adrian Smith, who I would say is the other primary songwriter of the group. Okay. And because, um, I mean, yes, I would say Steve Harris writes the majority of the songs, but he doesn't write all the songs. Um, Adrian Smith would be, and then Bruce Dickinson writes some as well. They're making um, But... Whenever other people write songs, they say that they all have to put it through the Steve Harris filter and that it's actually Steve Harris that turns all of their other songs into maiden songs. Uh, So they're not in the same position where they're writing all everyone else's parts as well. They're more going to bring him skeletal ideas. Like originally, Adrian Smith wanted this song to be a ballad. And Steve Harris was the one that said, we need to turn this into an upbeat song. I'm glad he made that choice because I cannot see this being a ballad. Yeah, it was supposed to originally be called On the Wings of of Eagles. And it was before they had settled on the concept album idea of the Seventh Son thing. And so then they just, they reworked it to be able to fit into the album that they ended up becoming. Hmm. So in Love. this instance, yeah, you can you can say probably that in the songs that he doesn't write, he does have more influence on what's being played. Yeah. Because in the end, like no one is is Iron Maiden more than Steve Harris is. And yeah. so everything has to kind of run through him in order to become a maiden song. Okay. So I think we can go ahead and move on to the next one. Let's move on to my favorite song of the set. Ah, I had a I had a guess that it was gonna be. The, yeah, that's well, wasted years. This this song actually it had to grow on me. Uh the I mean I've known this song for a long time. Uh when I first, <coughs> when I first heard it, I was still in the phase of ah, Bruce Dickens's voice is bad i would never listen to iron maiden and (laughs) i was just trying to find different songs where i could where he sang well 
you know. And to me, it was pretty much just it was the whole number of the Beast record. I thought Bruce Dickinson did amazing on. Um, but I've grown to appreciate his voice for what it is, and it's not the technicality behind it. It is that fun, mm-hmm. the energy. You know, energy behind it, and it's it's not the notes. It's just the fact that it's being sung. That's the point. Um, and and that's something that I had to learn to put aside listening to this song. And then when I finally opened up to the fact that it's just them having fun jamming out, I really do like this song. Like, this is one of my favorite Maiden songs, and, like, I will put this on loop sometimes you know it's just it's it's a great song i have no idea what it's about well i kind of have an idea what it's about but i'm not willing to guess because honestly i don't have that great of an idea but i'm glad you put it in this set because it was missing from the last one and i was really mad about that <laughs> yeah this is definitely one of their biggest most iconic songs and i actually do have a kind of a funny story about this song so, um, one of my good friends in high school, he used to say that he could play um, Two Minutes to Midnight on guitar. But anytime he played it, he played the Wasted Years line. <laughs> but I still hadn't heard either of those songs yet. <laughs> and so I thought that Two Minutes to Midnight was the Wasted Years guitar line. <laughs> and so... Uh, I remember Guitar Hero 5 came out and I saw that Two Minutes to Midnight was on that game. And I was just like, ah, yes, finally, I'm going to get to play that awesome Two Minutes to Midnight guitar line. And the song starts, and I was just like, wait a minute, how is that line going to fit with this tempo and this groove? (laughs) And And then I go through the whole song, I was like, that wasn't anywhere in there. Well, then what song was that? (laughs) And I went the longest time thinking that just like that. I was just like, was that by a different band? And then finally just, I wasn't even looking for it anymore. I just happened to turn on Wasted Years and it starts and I was just like, that's it. I found it. it." (laughs) I've done that before. It was like a Lenny Kravitz song where I had to do. Anyway, that's that's completely off kilter, whatever. (laughs) But yeah, I know what you're talking about. I've had those experiences before. And it's like, what in the world? Because you, you completely forgot that you're looking for that song. Dude, the second mm-hmm. time that they go to that guitar line and then they start just building that drum beat and everything off of it, it it's like right before the guitar solo. Uh-huh. I freaking love that part. Yep. Yeah, at the, at the, the beginning, the... it started, I'm like, oh, cool guitar line. And I I was expecting it to not come back. I was like, that's cool. But just an intro riff yeah i thought it was just like a oh kind of like a uh ride the lightning kind of thing oh yeah where it's Uh like oh it's really meant for like the intro and like a break you know maybe later and it and it come it it just came back and they just built off of it and built off of it and built off of it and i was just like yeah they're actually using it (laughs) I've, i've noticed that maiden doesn't like to waste riffs no they don't you know what I'm so saying? Like there'll you... be bands where it's like, "Oh, that was cool. Wish I yeah. could hear that some other time." Yeah, <laughs> wish I could hear yeah. that idea. Kind of and and they will upon. they will usually they'll either 
play it again over and over and over, and that'll be the, the main riff of that section, or it will come back. And you'll be like, ah, oh, I've heard that before, but now it's in a different musical context and it has a different yeah. feeling to it. And that's what this is. Mm-hmm. So I will say Iron Maiden, one thing, and I was going to leave this for final thoughts, but like just remembering, like they just have such a good, it's not like headbanger music. But it's just like they can just drive their songs so well, like you, you, it just locks in so hard. <laughs> yeah, like, it does. yeah. I would say this is a this is at the very least a head bopper. You know, mm-hmm. you can kind yeah, of bop you your head up and down to this one at yeah. the midway point of the song if you're not if you're not uh, bobbing your head to it. You know. There's something wrong with you. Yeah, and they, they even have too. some weird drum hits in there is what it sounds like, but you can still keep your head going. You know, it's mm-hmm. not it's not super, you know, I don't know, Gojira or liquid tension experiment kind of prog where it's like, what is happening? Um, I don't even know if Gojira does that. I don't even listen to Gojira. That yeah, they do. they do. Okay. Well, it's not like it's not like that kind of drum hit. You know, it's more like like mid '80s Rush, where it's yeah, kinda like, it's kind of got that different drum groove. You know, the drums are doing something different, but you can keep your head going, and it will come around, and you'll be right on the one. Mm-hmm. You can kind of dance to it. Yeah, a uh, little background info on this song. This is from the '86 album "Somewhere in Time." Is and... that a record? Is it a what? Concept album. No, they only made one concept record. Okay, good. Because I would have kept asking if you didn't just say that. <laughs> um, no, just one. Just Seventh Son. Okay, now... And this is another it, song by Adrian Smith. You're going to have to tell me what it's about. Um. So this song is pretty straightforward. It's just about... Um, you know, don't worry about yesterday, just focus on the now and, um, you know, just don't, don't cry over the wasted years, realize that you're living in the golden years. It's part of the course. Yeah. Part of it was a response to, because this was right after they finished the world slavery tour, which really just about killed them because it was, such an exhausting tour they all kind of went a little mad after it because they had to play so many dates in a row of just punishing shows and um they were so exhausted they were so just completely spent and some of the band members were wondering if they even wanted to continue because they're just like i don't want to get back on the road and do that again wow because it was it's it's there's a its own documentary of it on youtube when you watch it it's just like i'm watching it's like i don't even know how they got out of it alive i cannot even imagine on any instrument playing such a long show that many shows in such a short amount of time i don't know how they did it and so um, a couple of the band members did get into a deep depression, particularly Bruce Dickinson. And so I 
I'm pretty sure that that song was about that, about, you know, just trying to move forward after such a grueling experience. Huh. That's cool. So, and just, it's, it's cool in this, you know, cause obviously this was written by Adrian Smith. He gets to have some spotlight background vocals on the chorus and he's the one that gets to play that ripping solo. Oh, the solo is amazing. This this song is Adrian Smith's spotlight showcase. Well, if, I mean, if it's, I wrote a song like this, I would, yeah, I would try to showcase myself. You know, mm-hmm. It's gonna get played all <laughs> over the place because it's a great song, you know. Yeah, I guess I should say that in the sense because, like, you look at most solo sections at least two players are going to play. There's, they don't have a lot of solos where just one of the members plays oh, the solo. he's the only soloist. He's the only mm-hmm. soloist on the song. Huh. It's just his solo because it's his song. It's very personal to him. You know, and just, again, the fact that Bruce is even laying off of the vocals to give him a chance to sing just by himself. Like, you can tell that this song is just like, this is, we're going to let Adrian soar on this song. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that makes so much more sense now. Because he would randomly, in the middle of the yep. chorus live, he'd say, Adrian. And then uh-huh. it would just be Adrian singing the backup part. And I'd be like, what in the world? But now mm-hmm. I get it because it's his yeah. song. Okay. He's the one that's playing that lead line. I'm, that main I'm, riff and so it's just you know this is you can tell that this is just in the concert this is for everyone to go adrian smith everyone and they all clap and, you know it's it's his song to shine more than any other song these are the things that you don't learn anywhere else guys yeah you, that's right connections that you don't make anywhere else this is why yeah. you should it's great subscribe. look at that plug <laughs> <laughs> anyway anyway that that's a whole nother level of appreciation that i didn't even have and it's it's my favorite song of the set wow well all right so if if do you guys have anything else or are you ready to move on i'm good it's it i would have to say it's still you're still in that typical maiden uh key of minor or mm-hmm. major, you know, usually they don't do anything more fancy than that. And I think the switching between the major and minor modes, it, it works well for this song. It's that simple music theory that they just harp on over and over and over and capitalize on. And mm-hmm. it, they prove with this song and many of their other songs that you don't need to learn complex theory to write good music. You just need to know the basics. So I'm done. All right. <laughs> so we're actually going to stay on the same album oh, for wow. this next song. Also some from somewhere in time, and that is Heaven Can Wait. Never heard this before in my life. Yes, this is this is I would say probably the deepest cut of the set. But it's a song that in my opinion is actually better live than it is in the studio. 
I was very. They don't waste their verses. No, they don't. Like after listening to "Can't Play with Madison," then into this, the like in that verse. Uh huh. It's just like wow. Like most bands aren't ballsy enough to put a like line like that in their verses, like for multiple songs. Yeah. Yeah, there is there is a lot going on in this song. I love I mean, the it's, it's crowd. A... I like the crowd back and forth on the chorus. Yes, <laughs> which in my opinion, the Freddie Mercury thing. In my opinion, that actually strengthens because I would say probably the weakest part of this song is the chorus. When you listen to it in the studio, mm-hmm. it's kind of a it's kind of corny. But when he gives it to the audience, it, it makes just, it in awesome. my opinion, <laughs> Yeah, it makes it really awesome. It's just, it's crazy how some songs just need that extra little bit, you know, and sometimes that extra little bit is the audience. Mm hmm. Yeah, uh, I enjoy listening to this, the live version of this more than I do. And that's another reason why I pick the songs I do is I think, what's a song that, like, this is the going to be the best way for everyone to hear this song. And that's, and we'll get to another song that's like that as well towards the end of the set. Um, but this is definitely yeah, a deeper cut, but it's got just so many interesting things going on. What definitely one of the most interesting abrupt changes of of their songs where you've you know you got that first solo and then all of a sudden the tempo shifts the mood shifts when he goes into the take my hand Mm -hmm. and it goes into just this the i guess you could say a bit more of a traditional maiden um feel where it's it's more gallopy and just kind of stomping Mm -hmm. And it's yeah, it's really good. So let's I'll let me real quick talk about kind of what this song is about. So this is a Steve Harris song. And this was about him having an out of body experience. Oh my goodness, we're getting and the, weirder and weirder. Yeah, the fear of leaving your body and and going to the afterlife before it's your time. Now, this was not a band that did drugs. Uh, I mean, you know, not outside like, you know, pot or they like they weren't on cocaine or heroin or any of like the crazy. They didn't do any of the hard drugs. Yeah. So this isn't like a Dave Mustaine where he was like, you know, he overdosed on heroin and this was his experience. about This isn't kickstart my heart. No. (laughs) Um, It was probably more likely another dream. He does like to write about his dreams. Uh, but just the, the and just kind of you know maybe not even this is more of just like you know writing about the things he's read about people that have out of body experiences or near death mm-hmm. experiences of just the fear of going but I'm not ready to die yet I still have so much I want to do and so that's what the thing is heaven can wait till another day I'm not ready to go yet put me back in my body yeah you tell him and and so that middle section when it's the take my hand that is death itself calling to you saying take my hand i will lead you to the promised land i will give you immortality 
it's the seduction of going to the other side hmm. and it's the and the, the song is that push and pull of you know yes it might be better on the other side but at the same time you know i'm not ready i still have a life to live yeah you tell them you t- you tell <laughs> death man say uh-uh heaven can wait i was i it's really weird because at any time i see the word heaven in a song title i think of warrant and so i thought it was like for some reason i thought this was like a breakup song oh no <laughs> he's 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 talking about literal heaven and and i was like iron maiden having a breakup song i don't know maybe yeah no 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 it's I'm, it's never <laughs> that simple with them i'm sure it's possible that they may have at one point considered writing one but i would say probably the closest they've come to a breakup or a song even about a girl is a, is on their first album charlotte the harlot okay and even then it's not as straightforward as that so then uh never mind i stand corrected it was about an out-of-body experience yeah where'd that come from left field that's where it came from Uh, (laughs) i and and i see what you mean lucas about the the chorus being very cheesy it's just it's just a five major third one Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it descending down the major scale. It's it's like the it's like Necromancer Part Three. It's like you can't get cheesier than that. I can't imagine listen, listening to the the album version. But you're right. Like the the way that Bruce Dickinson interacts with the audience and gets them to sing along it is a freddie mercury moment and it really i think had i listened to the song on the album i think i would agree with you that like it would redeem that song and turn it into something that like the the audience can kind of be part of the best version of mm-hmm. and you get to hear a lot of really cool guitar embellishments in the back when the audience takes over that I had never noticed on the studio recording before. Kind of that. And also like Ethan said with those little, those really tight licks in the middle of the verses, like who does that? You know, multiple times too. Who does that multiple times? Usually it'd be like a second or third verse where it's just trying to throw something in. That's kind of funky, but like they, they reliably put that in there multiple times um yeah i'm ready to talk about the next song actually well i actually there is that one ending more part thing one more talk thing about. okay that yeah ending part, so man. let's well I, then two more things then Ooh. so oh. let's talk so when they do the whoa oh part yep. Um, every on this tour, every city that they would go to, they would actually get whatever that city or region's 
uh, football team, which of course football meaning soccer for them. Yeah. They would actually invite them up on stage to do the chant with them. And it would just turn into this big old gang party. That's awesome. (laughs) And that's, and that's actually how they recorded it in the studio is they just got a bunch of guys from nearby pub and said, Hey, you want to come sing on this part? And so it was like, they were almost recreating that for the live version. And so when you watch the video of them doing this live, it's really cool because they're all just like, you've got these ordinary guys. They're just jumping up and down singing. And the bandmates are just kind of like locked arms with them. And Bruce Dickinson's like going and playing with the props on the other side of the stage. (laughs) And I think that also just gives the song a really cool, uh, boost live. Hmm. And Ethan, you wanted to mention the ending of this song. Yeah, because that like that very last one where it, like there's the drum hits on it. Yeah, I was just like, oh, that's awesome. That I thought, I just thought it was a good way to end the song. Because I was like, close. I didn't Go ahead. really know how it was gonna. <laughs> I just didn't know because I was like, oh, they might go into another solo or something, you know. And then mm-hmm. that hit, and I was like, oh, yeah, it's over. And then they go into the, the trash can. But I yeah. love that. Something that will probably interest you, Ethan, is that um, Nico McBrain, their drummer, he does not have a double kick pedal. I don't know if you noticed that if you uh, were looking points. at any of the footage. Respect points gained. He he considers double, and he plays a lot of stuff that most people cannot play without using a double kick. I don't know if you were noticed. He's got a lot of like really fast kick drum patterns in there. Oh my! How does he? What? He considers double bass cheating. Ah, that's like that's like considering alternate picking cheating. I know. Well, that's what Metallica would tell you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's i mean james hetfield is just a down picking machine but but the rest of us mortals no we can't do that so he's I, doing the trick where he does three kicks and then a snare and then three kicks and then a snare <laughs> you know that's not a bad trick no it's not but, so just just to recontextualize how much he's working when he's playing the drums, like because he has a lot of stuff that you would never think that he didn't have a double pedal, and he's just single pedaling it. He he says he considers it a matter of principle to not have a double kick. It's just that, right, that he's going to do everything single footed. That's a level of just how <laughs> that I don't think I've ever like what. The drummer for Iron Maiden doesn't have a double kick. Yeah. Of all people. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. So now, in the future, whenever you listen to all their songs, just imagine him doing a lot of the stuff. Because there's like, there's stuff that I can't even physically comprehend how he's doing it. Even Lars has a double kick. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Wow. He doesn't ever do anything. I guess now that I'm thinking back over at least this set, there was never anything that he did where I was like, 
wow, that double kick was so fast. Like the way that he arranges his drum parts are just really locked in with the bass usually. Mm-hmm. And so you don't really miss it. Yeah, but yeah, you look at this very next song, he has a rapid succession of kick drums in the opening riff, you know? Oh, dun, yeah. Dun, 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 you know, so I don't know how sustainable is that and then how well can you keep it in time, you know? I it, For me, obviously, I'm not a drummer, so that just seems completely foreignly difficult, impossible four-star difficulty black diamond level. It, he's just, but he, he's worked on he's it. He's locked in. Locked absolutely in. Tough. Yeah, he's he's just, he's done it over and over and over and over again. Yeah. He's just practiced. I mean, they all have that sell, sell live performances. So that gives us a good segue into our next song, the the big the big epic. The big epic, which I've never actually heard before. Oh, interesting. I I completely I remember us talking about the old Iron Maiden episode, and it was at some point we were gonna uh, like record some covers or something. You were setting up drums, and had just gotten water or whatever, and we needed to kill some time. Um, and we were listening to to the old Iron Maiden set, and you're like, "Oh, our next thing might be I don't know. I'm really considering doing all the epics, like you know, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner would be one of them." And I'm like, "I've never heard that one. I should go listen to it." And then I never did, you know, until right now. <laughs> and I'm glad I did. It, it it's a very different epic than you would hear from. It, the the epic bands like yeah like uh like pink floyd there's no there's no huge build-up there's no you know wonderful grandiose finale where they go into eight different keys it's it, it's not octavarium it's not octavarium it's just the song happens to be 13 minutes <laughs> it takes you along this journey and it's not supposed to be a a symphony. It's just yeah. It's a song about a dude who shot the bird. Yes. So um, this is a until their most recent album, um, which came out in 2015. This was the longest song that they had ever recorded in the studio. Oh wow. Uh, being at 13 and a half minutes. Um, and they said that at the time they weren't planning on it being a big song like that. That he's, Steve Harris said that, you know, when he was writing it, he wasn't timing it out going, oh yeah, this is going to be a big 13 minute song. It was just after the fact, you know, they you know, put all the parts together. Mm-hmm. They did a basic run of it, and they're like, what's the time on there? There are 13 minutes. He was like, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess this is a 13-minute song. It's never going on the radio, yeah. Um, um, but this song I put on my as number two wow. on my ranked playlist. It's it pretty has good. Of, it has a lot of Because to me, this is, this is the defining Maiden epic. It has a lot of good riffs in it. It has a lot of good openings in it. And at, or openings, 
a good moments in it. The the opening riff, you know that you know it's kind of like it's got that feeling of like the galloping. You know we're on a journey. We're opening up this scene. We're we're setting the setting the scene. I don't want to say in two phrases of scene, but we're setting the stage. There we go. And yeah, they'll play that riff, and then they'll have you know a couple little uh, different tweaks to it. They'll do the da 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 da, da you know, multiple times or whatever, and they will stay together, you know, mostly because they've played it over and over and over again. But the fact that they took the time to add in the little tidbits there, when in reality they could have just moved on to the next part, I think that's kind of cool. Yeah they took the time to gel. I don't know. Yeah. All right, so let's give a little context about this song. So this is off of the Power Slave record. It's pretty much the it's the big centerpiece of the album. On an album filled with great iconic songs in their own right. I mean, you've got one of the greatest one-two punches ever with Aces High, Two Minutes to Midnight. And you've got the incredible title track, Power Slave, on there as well. So it takes a lot to overshadow those songs. But then, yeah, right at the end of the album is Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And this song um, was also one of the centerpieces of that original World Slavery Tour. So that was one of the main things and um eddie trunk interviewed uh bruce dickinson while they were on the tour and he said what song are you most excited to bring back for this tour and without even thinking bruce said oh ancient mariner for sure (laughs) (laughs) that's it guys yeah. And so obviously it's based off of the epic poem The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner which I don't know if you guys had ever read that mm-hmm. before in school. I, yep. <laughs> nope. And so, um, so I'll explain kind of yeah. what the poem is about. So it's uh, about an ancient mariner who um, is forced to tell the story to anyone he comes across about what has happened to him as a warning for others to not do the same. And so he's telling one particular person that's on their way to a wedding. He stops them and he says, I must tell you my story so that way you do not do the same. And his story is that while he was on a boat, um, they were lost at sea with nothing to eat or drink. And he shoots an albatross, which to seafarers is a bird of good omen. The mariner kills the bird of good omen his shipmates cry against what he's done. And the reason why is because they believed that the spirits of dead sailors were um, personified into albatrosses. And so to kill one was to invoke a curse and to bring doom upon your ship. Okay. And what the big kicker is is that it says but when the fog clears they justified them and made themselves a part of the crime so it wasn't just the mariner who would be punished it was the whole crew for not 
punishing him. Hmm. And so one by one, um, they start to fall ill and die. They, uh, the, the wind stops blowing, which back in that day, you know, if you don't have the wind blowing in your side, you're not going to move. They're as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. And the, the iconic line, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Yeah. And then they see a ghost ship approaching and it's piloted by death herself. Herself. Mm hmm. And death decides that she is going to take the entire crew, but leave the Mariner alive. The one that now has the dead albatross hanging around his neck. Not even going to take the bird. Huh? The bird's dead. Why not just take the bird? Whatever. I'm done. Yeah, the bird's dead. Okay. And so that's when that's when the crew members start to drop uh, one by one, and pretty much turn almost like into uh, into mummies and just these these zombified husks. Oh. And until eventually, the mariner pleads and asks for forgiveness and learns his lesson that he must love all things that God made. With heart, he blesses them, all of creatures, them too. And so at that point, then uh, he is led to another boat that takes him to, to safety. But part of the catch is you get your life, but you are cursed to constantly, for all eternity, warn everyone else to not make the same mistake you did. And so he's fallen under this curse, and that's why he has to tell the guy on the way to the wedding. Yes, he has to tell anyone he walks into. So the fact that the dude's on the way to the wedding has nothing to do with it. It's not. It's just that's just okay. a particular event that uh, where he stops him at. I feel like I remember that being a big deal, but. I, it could be. I just I I didn't come across it. Okay. Well, there uh, you go. So yeah, and so they pretty much just retell it faithfully. It's not a, wow. an, it's not a metaphor for something else. They're not uh, retooling it to modern society. They're literally like. There's even points where they they took uh, word for word from the original poem. Like when it gets to the creepy midsection, he goes one after one by the star dugging moon. Too quick for Godot, no sigh. That's like actually from the original Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Nice. Yeah. So this changes the entire song for me. No, I'm really? <laughs> really? Okay. I'll tell you what, in the same way that Rush inspired so many young kids to go and start reading like old literature <laughs> iron maiden did the same for metalheads like they were the first metal band to like not just talk about satan or motorcycles or you know just kind of like or just war as a general yeah. concept they were the first ones to like start actually talking about literature and 
like ancient poetry and Greek mythology and just like actually like really giving people a good knowledge on things that they might not like the trooper is not just about a random war it's about the poem the charge of the life brigade hmm. and so it's just stuff like that like just they were such intellectual guys i mean their lead singer flies planes so i mean mm-hmm. they yeah these were not your you know for as great as metallica is metallica had their moment where they were you know crazed out on drugs and alcohol they, i i'm convinced they're still in that moment well i mean oh papa hetfield just got back from rehab really yep he had to go to rehab last year i, I knew he had to go i didn't know he was already out yeah he's already out he's made a couple of post rehab appearances good for him um but like iron maiden never fell into that they weren't part of the burnout druggy lifestyle that all the other metal bands of their time were in you know they weren't like ozzy and judas priest and metallica megadeth you know they were they had good heads on their shoulders and it's i think it's a big big credit to their continued longevity is that they didn't have that big burnout i mean yeah in the 90s they released i would say their their weakest material but it wasn't because of drugs it was just because they were trying to figure out how does a metal band exist after uh the 90s (laughs) but i would say that they've had probably the greatest post 2000s career of any of the classic metal artists yeah this song. and i contribute that and i contribute that to their their um dedication to just being well-rounded people reading um keeping up with culture and entertainment and just not being like you know thick-headed morons and not trying to write the same kind of music even though yeah. it's still technically it's still there okay not trying to write the same music there's yeah. definitely it's still maiden it's definitely still them i would say i haven't listened to much of their newest stuff but i oh it's still it limb. still sounds just like maiden i'd go out on a limb and say they definitely still sound like maiden and it, it a lot of bands are unable to a lot of those classic bands are unable to compete in the 2000s because they're trying to write their old stuff again mm-hmm. you know and and you just you you can't you did it once you're not going to be able to do it better yeah i would say their newest album which again that album is about five years old now which yeah. is crazy mm-hmm um, I think stacks up with the best that they've ever written. Yeah, you were mentioning that last episode, and it's making me want to, yeah. Look the up. Book of Souls, man. It's a, like, in my ranked two songs from that album are in the top ten. Is that the one where Eddie looks like a monkey on the front? 
not a monkey. He's um, like a an ancient Aztec like shaman priest, where he's got like the jungle makeup on. Okay, uh, I think, but it's a black background. I guess he, I could see where you could think. Kind of looks like yeah. Okay, that's the only. It's meant thing to I remember. It's meant to be more like shamanistic. Well, okay, good. That's that's what I meant. Because <laughs> the album is a book of souls, and so it's meant to kind of the the theme of the album. You could say is like, you know ancient rituals and monkeys and mystic lore and monkeys <laughs> i think really going for that monkey vibe yeah i let's go back to mansion mariner yeah i think we're kind of off on a on a tangent there i think we can go for hours and hours and hours on the different parts of this song let's there's one part i specifically want to narrow in exactly on, i think i think we should do that and it's the guitar solo section after it builds up the scream and the and it just explodes into that big instrumental section. I'm trying to think. I remember the scream. The scream was my part. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. The problem is I don't I don't know the song. I'm not intimately related with this song. Yeah, and there's a lot going on. The there song. is a lot going because we just came... Ethan, you following me? Yeah, we just came off. I don't that. know what he says, but we come out of that really down moment. That really down kind of moment, those where... dual guitar, that dual guitar thing, where it was kind of, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of just bass and vocals, mm-hmm. with some guitar swells, right. And there was the huge and then yeah you've got that great now is that scream is that scream live? Yes, it is. Wow. Wow. Yeah, he's he's like his his voice is held up so well like over the years, and he could do that stuff. And here I am at nineteen, and I can't. <laughs> Although if I tried to do it, I probably would like muscles would probably fly out of my throat if I tried to do that. That would be yeah, horrendous. I can do it, but I've got to be on a really good day to do I, it. I probably have to drink many many a warm beverage to relax my throat before I would even <laughs> attempt. Uh, no. I'll stick with my falsetto, thank you. But uh, <laughs> It's just there's so much happening in this song, man. It's just it will happen. It it's and that's I think that's good that we can't remember the specific parts. I think that's actually a good thing because it flows well. It does flow they, very well. There's not any individual part. It's it's not like it's we play this riff and then doom, we play this riff and then boom, we play this riff. It's kind of a seamless, wonderful, you know, kind of like how you can't name, you know, every riff in some Megadeth songs, you know, because they flow so well. Like there Mm -hmm. could be 10 million riffs and take no prisoners, but that's a three minute song. I would say I originally I didn't like this song a lot because really well, and, and here's why. 
it was it that's why whatever i figured out like the purpose of the song was like the story of like the, the tale you know is really the purpose and and, and orchestrating the tale because now it makes a lot more sense because before i was like it flows so well and it's and like musically it's good but i was like yeah there's some like cool parts in it but i was like it's just long i don't really know what it's about it just feels kind of long you know but now hearing like oh there's like a it's like an actual folklore tale i have a lot more respect for it now because it's like now it's like split up into acts because i was like why are they going mm-hmm. so far down it's just so weird like i was just like they're just doing it. i originally i was just like they're just doing it to be fancy or whatever you know they want some second act to, to their song and, but now knowing that that like that's when the ghost ship arrives it's like oh yeah okay they're creating a soundtrack and, and that's happening. that's why now i look at it differently because before i i i just listened to it and i was like okay it's kind of upbeat and they go down in this thing and then there's a guitar solo and then they kind of go out but now it's like oh it's now it's like he's introducing the tale to the guy and then he's talking about being on the ship and then he talks about when he shot the albatross and then the, to the curse and then the ship shows up it breaks it up into more parts now but knowing that the intention of the song wasn't to be like this um instrumental musical masterpiece like in from a technical standpoint and that it is more of like a soundtrack and it was made more to accompany the story that's 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 my thing that's where i'm like this yeah song, this song it's... rises to a whole nother echelon of songwriting uh-huh. knowing that the song is about that originally i was just like oh it's a 13 minute long song and it doesn't really like there's not a whole lot of variety in terms of like a dream mm-hmm. the- like a dream theater epic it's like i think sometimes we're a little spoiled by us prog guys that like you know when we see a 13 minute song we think of something like yep. how rush or dream theater would do it yep. and it's it's totally a different and that's why whenever you told me form story, and structure like, this, that changes everything for this song for me like the whole entire this this went from like probably my least favorite song to probably my second favorite like just knowing like what it was for you know what i mean nice that's what we're all about here that's probably why i didn't remember the guitar solo because i was like like i was just like it's yeah it was a guitar solo but now knowing well then i'll now knowing then i'll recommend listening through it again with that perspective in mind. yeah because now knowing that like that was like like in the story where where that moment lies in the story it makes it a lot better Mm -hmm. well then i think that we can go ahead and move on to the finale of this show a song that i didn't know existed i didn't even think to think existed because why would you whatever um iron maiden self yes I kind of alluded to it at the beginning of the um, podcast with the fact that we would eventually talk about their self-titled song by the end of the set. And it's the end of the set, so here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, this, so I was it, not expecting it, a, this thrashy of a song from them, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so this is definitely shows kind of they were a, kind of a very punky band in the very beginning. 
Um, Because this is pre-Thrash when the song was written. The song was written in like 78. Wow. Okay. So this was still when the Ramones and the Sex Pistols were the biggest bands in in England at that time. And Iron Maiden was formed as a response to punk. They wanted to kind of push metal back and kind of more follow like what Black Sabbath and Judas Priest were doing. But they still contained a bit of a punk edge to it and so this was one of the very first songs steve harris ever wrote so is this is this in the is this the this was off of the self-titled album yeah is this the first song on the album no it's actually the last song on the album well that's fitting and this song by far is the song they've played live more than any other song Oh, well, of course you can't not. Because it is, it is no matter what there's, I would say there's only really two guarantees at a maiden live show. One that they're going to play fear of the dark because that's become so iconic for the crowd to sing along to. And that every set will close with iron maiden. Although it's, doesn't ever close the encore it's like the it's always the end of the main set before the encore it closes every set yes every set it like like they play it multiple times a show oh no 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 not as in i just mean every concert this is always the song that ends the set before the encore i gotcha okay well every every band has their closer song from their first album i mean gnr's got paradise city for example but Mm -hmm. i think it's a it's a great and i don't know what it this is this is really sad maybe i should do this next time so i should listen to the the non-live versions but um towards the end he starts saying like iron maiden's gonna get you know and Mm -hmm. scream for me santiago and and trying to rile the crowd up and trying to 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 have them have their last hurrah as well as uh-huh. the because yeah. it's not just the band who's finishing it's the audience like this is the audience's last chance to get all their you know belt up frustration with their you know jobs or ex-girlfriend or whatever to scream it out you know Absolutely. So also, (laughs) then, you definitely haven't seen the video for this yet, because there's also another staple that is guaranteed to happen whenever this song comes on. And that's when the giant animatronic Eddie comes on the stage. (laughs) Nice. And on this tour, it was a 12-foot tall, somewhere in time Eddie. So the futuristic cyborg one with the big laser gun. Nice. And so he's uh, he walks out on the stage, and he's actually like the the band members are like fighting him away with their guitars, and it's like this it's this big spectacle. And every tour they do it a different way. Some kind of different version of Eddie comes out. So is is it a is it a animatronic or is it somebody? It's anim- So it's it's an animatronic. Like originally when they first did it, it was like a guy on stilts. Or like when they did the Power Slave tour, the World Slavery, they had a 30-foot Eddie 
that was a marionette puppet come out and bust through the wall and it was a big mummy oh i remember seeing something like that uh i when i went and saw them it was the version of eddie from seventh son of the seventh son where he's got the flaming head and he's holding this embryonic sack filled with like weird strange things and he's like what? he's just half of a body but he's like moving around and moving his mouth and fires shooting out everywhere <laughs> like it's just it's the big moment like that just everything iron maiden all comes together it's it's the campy moment exactly it's it's <laughs> because it's a very simple song there's three verses. All three verses are exactly the same. Yep. Um, it's more, and this is why I think that this is another song that's better as a live song than it is on the studio. Yeah. Because it was written to be a live song, and they just put it on the first album because they needed more space. Huh. And it was just, it was just like, this isn't our repertoire. Let's just put it on the album at the end. Uh, and the the studio version's okay, but it just it doesn't have that energy, and just the whole the whole spectacle. So you'll need to go watch the live version of yeah. Iron Maiden because so you can see the whole Eddie thing as well. It's written for an audience, exactly. Can't not have an audience. Uh, and then of course yeah you've got that massive trash can at the end <laughs> like a minute and 30 seconds of trash can <laughs> uh-huh. I I think that would be the takeaway of the set is that Iron Maiden is great on their records but when you put them in front of a crowd they take it to the next level Yes, every time and that's what I want to do with any band that we do live music of. Yeah, I want to show uh, bands that it's like when they're live, they're not the same band. I'm not. I don't want to just do live records of bands just because they have one. Yeah, but it's just like here we're going to show you a different side of the band. Okay. So that's kind of the whole reason why. We're, we're doing this it gives us another way to look at them so real quick what are your I, I didn't really get a lot of uh your thoughts on on the song and what you how you felt about it, how you feel of it as a set closer me i i i think it fits because it's like musically speaking it fits and i can't put my finger on why and I think part of it has to do with the way that Bruce Dickinson built it up and the way that they do the trash can at the end. And, and I think that has a lot to do with it. But something about just like saying their name, you know, mm-hmm. like this is who we are. That was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. Hope to see you next time. This is what we're all about is just having fun. I think that that's that's the takeaway they want to give the audience. And Mm -hmm. if you put something that that they're going to love at the end, you leave them wanting more. It's just business 101. Yeah. No, I think this was a a great closer. I think you picked a great opener 
number one. I think you picked a great closer. And I think that the arc in between led perfectly into Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which I know you wanted to put in this set. Mm-hmm. And you could you could probably have put any song before Iron Maiden. And it just just the nature of this song, I think it would have ended perfectly. So yeah, I think this is a great set. I think that yeah, I think it was a good set. I'm, I'm gonna. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> a, a big reason is like that dueling guitar line thing that, like in that yeah. kind of dual thing. That's such a great line. And then I think this song, what we've been talking the whole time just about Iron Man is like the energy factor. Like this song just kind of like exemplifies that because I was like, it's kind of weird that it's so, it's like feels faster than the other ones. Like none of the other songs are like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Yeah. And so just to like get the blast beats, I guess it's not black blast beats, but kind of it's that, double that, time. That punk rock double time thing in there. And just I love whenever he kind of just like like the song kind of stops and then he like <laughs> you know let's go or whatever he says. Yeah, and that's the point when Eddie walks out onto the stage. And then everyone's screaming, when, when it, and then it just goes right back into that. It's just like it's there's no gimmicks. It's just it's it's the song called Iron Maiden. And I what think do you mean there's no gimmick? There. The whole thing is a gimmick. Oh my gosh! Whatever. I know what you mean. <laughs> it's just the song with a guitar line in it, you know, and and the and it's yeah. I think it's. It's also cool to just be like, this is what they end their live shows on. This is what we end the set on. It just makes sense. And it makes yeah. sense that they yeah. would do it that way. Yeah. All right. Well, then uh, that wraps up our set. Oh, and by the way, just a little bonus. So on this tour, just imagine they close with Iron Maiden, they're screaming, and then the encore. They start playing Hallowed Be Thy Name. Yes! <laughs> and that's the actual set closer. That's pretty uh, awesome. What? Yes! Oh, that would be... Oh, my goodness. And let me tell you what. It is epic. <laughs> I love it. All right. Okay. And so that with that, we'll go ahead and take another break after this very long segment. Yeah. And when we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts and close things up. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Ethan. Uh, welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got done listening to our six songs, which were uh, Number of the Beast, Can I Play with Madness, Wasted Years, Heaven Can Wait, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and last but not least, the self-titled Iron Maiden. And now we are on to our last segment before After Hours called Final Thoughts. So Grant, will you grace us with your final thoughts? I don't know about gracing with my final thoughts, but <laughs> I will give you my final thoughts. Um, so I'm, I would consider myself an Iron Maiden appreciator at the beginning of this 
podcast recording at the beginning of this whole ordeal that if someone put on an Iron Maiden song and said, hey, this is a great Iron Maiden song, I would sit and I would critique it and I'd listen to it and I would probably enjoy it. But I'm not going to go out seeking for, you know, good Iron Maiden music. I think that's completely changed by the end of this. I'm ready to, you know, binge listen to some Iron Maiden. And... I definitely want to go through that whole classic era and just pick out some really great songs that I like to add to my playlist. Um, And I think that there's no better way to say it than that. And then also they're just a great live band because we are talking about live, but, but there, there's no better way to say it than I am ready to go hunt myself for more Iron Maiden. That's you're ready to go. Ed hunting. I'm ready to go Ed Hunt. <laughs> That's it. That's my final thought. I, I would say my final thought would be, oh man, and and this might resonate with a lot of people that are uh, that don't naturally gravitate towards metal, and and but of course I'm more into like the jazz scene. But with Iron Maiden, I'd always I I the Beatles were kind of the same for me, where I was. I had listened to a couple of Beatles songs and I was like, eh, but everyone talked about how great the Beatles are. And I never really listened to them because I thought they were overhyped. And then once you actually listen to the Beatles, you're like, oh, I see why everybody, like I can now as a musician, see why the Beatles are such a massive success. But it was kind of the same with Iron Maiden where I kind of go in and I'm not, and I know like, Yes, I know Iron Maiden was this big deal. I know that Iron Maiden, like everybody talks about Iron Maiden. Everyone, I know they kind of emulate Iron Maiden in some way. They're this prolific band, you know. But now after actually like listening to them, it's I'm now like, okay, yeah, I see why <laughs> now. Like <laughs> I see why now everyone emulates them because they're, they're it's just so good. And it's one of those things that you kind of take for granted where it's like something becomes, there are things in this world that get overhyped just because people are stupid. And then there's things like Iron Maiden that get overhyped because they deserve every single bit of hype that they get. And now coming back and listening to the live and listening to just how solid everybody is. And, and even just like the way that they're writing songs, the way that they're vetting songs, the energy that they have, especially live. Um, yeah, I, I, there's just a grown appreciation for, I guess, kind of some, some of more of the roots of where we are with metal today, that it's so easy to see the trace back to Iron Maiden. And so it's been kind of a cool, uh, history. It's almost like a, a weird pseudo history lesson for the entire genre, you know? to go back and listen to Iron Maiden from the ear of someone that is, uh, you know, like next week is, is a little bit more comfortable because we're doing Michael Jackson. But like this week I was like coming into it. I was like, Ooh, Iron Maiden. Oh man. Like I got to kind of mentally prepare. Like I was excited, but I didn't know that I would gain as much of an appreciation for them as a holistic genre shaping band. You know what I'm saying? So that was that was my final take. Well, it makes my heart warm to hear 
both of you guys saying that because I know that you guys have listened to me talk over and over again about how great Maiden is. And I'm sure that um, during all those times, you're just like, really, Maiden? <laughs> what a... I, I know probably Ethan from you, it's just uh, what a, a dumb metal band and from Grant, probably more of a other, oh, just they're kind of more of a sissy band. Metallica is much more of a heavy band. <laughs> um, but man, there's just something about them. I think there's such, they're such smart songwriters. They're such great performers and they just, they've got that, they've got that secret sauce that you kind of even can't explain that just, there's something about Maiden that just makes them so dang good. And it's just this combination of all the parts that we talked about in the episode. Um, obviously, I knew how great of a live group they were because I've seen them twice. Um, but I really, for the first time, got to understand why they were good. Like, I didn't understand or really comprehend the Queen connection until I started working on this episode. And as I was kind of, you know, jotting down my basic points of why Maiden is a great live band, I was just like, huh, this is feeling very familiar. Yeah. I feel like I've written down these parts before. And so it's, it's makes more sense now to me why I specifically have drawn towards them because it's kind of really scratching a similar itch, but in the same way, such a different one. Because again, the, the base is kind of what I really just, it's the wellspring that I continually return to. He's the, Steve Harris is the kind of bass player that every time I listen to him, I just am filled with um, determination to get better at my instrument. Because I listen to him, I'm just like, gosh, Dang, that's that's one of the best bass lines I've ever heard in my life. Mm -hmm. And um, Maiden just has such a large catalog. We've got so many great episodes we can mine out of them. The next time that we return to them, we're going to go back to the early days and look at them with their original lead singer, Paul Diano. Because there are some a lot of underrated gems kind of in that time before they broke big with number of the beast. And I'm really excited that both of you guys are now, uh, bigger fans and bigger appreciators of maiden and it'll make future episodes probably that much more fun to listen to <laughs> and get ready for. So, um, to all of you listeners, thank you so much for going along this journey with us. I hope that you enjoyed. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. We talked about that at the very beginning. We were just like, oh, man, <laughs> this could be four hours long. I mean, when we talk about one of the four pillars, it's it's very <laughs> possible to do for that to happen. Yep. But next week, we are going to be, uh, as Ethan uh, foreshadowed we're going to be looking at Michael Jackson so I think that that's going to be a really good episode so make sure you tune into that we have new episodes every Monday morning 9am central 
make sure that you listen to the songs. The uh, link is in uh, the description of the episode, as well as a link to get to our Patreon page. Make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube as well. We are putting episodes on there now. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and let us know what artists you want us to cover next. We actually do have a, uh, a fan request coming the week after next. So tune in next week if you want to know who that is. And I think that's about it. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. Keep on listening to good music. Good music.